Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My guest today is a nationally recognized branding expert, a contributor to Forbes, and has appeared on CBS, MSNBC, Fox Business, and NPR Marketplace. He is also the author of Accidental Branding, How Ordinary People Build Extraordinary Brands, and Library Space Planning, a PLA Guide. He is the founder and president of Third Wave Brand Trainers. He is also a library advocate and has been doing a lot of work with libraries this last several years, which we will talk about today. And last and certainly not least, he is one of my colleagues at NYU, where he is an associate professor of marketing, and my friend. Welcome, David Vinjimuri, I hope I said it right, to Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Nice to talk to you, Joanne. Thank you. As I always like to do at the start of these, can, we tell, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Um, sure. Well, uh, you know, the interesting part of where I'm from is not so much where I grew up, which was in this area and a little bit in the Midwest. It's actually where my family comes from. Um, and I was sort of unearthing this because I, I hold what I think is the smallest elected office in the country. <laughs> I, I represent, uh, uh, I'm a trustee in a village outside of New York City in, in Westchester County. So I represent about 7,000 people. Um, and, but I was thinking about, you know, the origins, uh, recently, and I realized that on, on one side of my family, I'm, uh, Caucasian and I have, uh, uh, there was some, uh, work done to, to show the family tree. And I'm related to, uh, a president who died, uh, 32 days into office because he caught pneumonia on his, uh, inaugural parade. Oh. Harrison. And, uh, but also, uh, uh, somebody who fought at the battle of Lexington. So and and that in in that part of the family the you know the family came uh, to Connecticut in the 1700s um, and uh, and ended up in Nebraska but then ironically I ended up going to high school in Connecticut but on my dad's side uh, my grandfather brought the family uh, to the U S in 1954 from India um, and so the, and the, the apocryphal story they tell about the family is there. Uh, my my grandfather was here in the in the U.S. already teaching, and my grandmother, my uh, dad, um, and my two aunts were on the board of the SS Liberty, uh, sailing into New York Harbor. And my youngest aunt, who was ten at the time, uh, pulls uh, uh, my grandmother's coat and says, "Look, the lady is wearing wearing a sari, just like you." And she <laughs> So, uh, so I think being biracial and and particularly being biracial, but not identifiably so, you know, I look pretty Caucasian. Um, that's uh, sort of the core part of where I'm from. You know, I've known you a long time and your name is so exotic that I've always associated it that with you with that part of it. I did not know about the long history and roots in the United States. That's a pretty cool story. 
Pretty cool story. So I know you bill yourself as a library advocate. Mm-hmm. And in full disclosure, I am a big lover of libraries. I have they've been my sanctuaries, and I believe you used that in your article since I was a little kid growing up in Queens in the Glen Oaks Library with no air conditioning, sitting on the floor in the summers in the young adult section. But um and I do find there's a sense of peace that comes over me when I walk into libraries. But before that, I, I want to talk about the article that you wrote, h- how you got from being a marketer. You wrote an article in the post-pandemic library. But can you tell us how, as a marketer like yourself, you started working with libraries? Right. So it was actually a different article that, that started that. I wrote uh, for Forbes for uh, starting in maybe 2010 or 2011. And one of the largest, earliest articles that I wrote was um, on a shift in publishing, on the, the growth of self-publishing and, you know, the, the fact that a bunch of uh, best-selling authors who were uh, not getting the support they wanted from their publishers had sort of abandoned them and bought back the rights to their books. And anyway, that article got a couple hundred thousand views on Forbes and got circulated a lot. And a a month or two after it came out, two uh, women who had started a small publishing house with, I want to say, 13 titles approached me and said, you need to write about libraries. Um, And they explained that they had, uh, a few weeks earlier, had had a book that had uh, gotten onto the Today Show. Um, And it was for young audiences... um, uh, the the protagonist was a, a Asian American female soccer player, um, and that they had the marketing idea because one of them had a marketing background. They had the marketing idea of um, donating an electronic copy of this book to every library in the country um, after it got this national exposure, and they they inquired around and they realized that there was actually one company called Overdrive that controlled the electronic access to 93% of the um, public libraries in the United States. It was their software that all these libraries used. And when they contacted Overdrive about making this donation, they actually were turned away. Um, and to be fair, it's, it wasn't an example at that time of Overdrive like trying to be evil or anything. Like that. <laughs> it, was, it was that they were set up to work with the uh, what I guess was the big five publishers at that time. Now maybe there's four, but uh, um, you know they were there for the Random Houses and Simon and Schuster's and all that. Not not for you know a publisher with twelve books. But and and that was an interesting story. But I honestly don't think I would have written about it. But the same week, Maureen Sullivan, who was at that moment the uh, president of the American Library Association, wrote a public letter to publishers. Uh, um, talking about the discrimination that libraries faced because they were paying at that time up to $85 for an electronic copy of a book that cost patrons $9.99 if they were to buy it directly from Amazon. And, you know, if you know anything about libraries, you know that when they buy a book that's a physical book, they pay less than a consumer because they're a large customer. Um, And, Ebooks are treated as software, so you actually buy a license. So that's legally why why libraries can be discriminated against by publishers. But but the bigger question that that put in my mind was 
why on earth there was a fight between publishers and libraries. And, and, and I sort of, so I started, started asking the question, you know, why is there this conflict? Cause as a consumer marketer, um, through my career, when I worked at Johnson and Johnson and Coca-Cola, if we wanted to get something new into the hands of our best customers, we paid a lot of money to do it. Mm-hmm. So if you've been to a supermarket and you've had somebody who's likely either a teenager or retired handing you a sample, they're not a food scientist. You know, they they probably do something entirely different for the rest of their life. Um, that costs about $4 a sample not outside of the cost of whatever they're giving you. It's really, really expensive. And yet with libraries, you have this publicly funded institution um, most libraries have a master's degree in library science, and they are entirely focused on you know this sort of ecosystem of reading, and yet there's a fight between them and publishers. So the first thing I did was call around to a bunch of local libraries and say, "Well, you know, explain to me the the you know the arrangements you have with publishers do they control displays near the front of the library you know, do they pay do you have ethical issues about them you know competing to pay for display space to to show new authors and new titles and they're like no nothing like that exists maybe the near public library is a little bit of that but but it basically doesn't exist and it was true it didn't exist and the further i got into it the further i realized that, that there's these two this, this incredibly trusted public institution on one side and this um, large but sort of um, an archaic industry on the other side that doesn't even understand the roots of its own success. I mean, when I was taking consumer marketing at Harvard Business School, there wasn't really anybody dying to get out of you know their MBA program and, and start working in publishing. <laughs> um, so, so, and, and I, I was lucky to uh, meet somebody around that time who was working for the publishing industry as a data specialist who had a consumer marketing background as well, you know, and he showed me a bunch of data, which basically suggested that publishing is controlled by a very small number of very successful authors and that all of the stuff that you probably read about if you're following the Man Booker Prize or anything else represents a tiny fraction of the output of that industry. And most of it is James Patterson and about 50 other people. <laughs> um, and in fact, when we ran the New York Times bestseller list over a two-year period, there's you know 14,000 potential spots on it. And it was just three or 400 authors that accounted for 95% of that. Wow. So, um, so it really pointed to this very bizarre relationship between... Uh, an, an industry that really actually has quite a bit of difficulty developing new brands, you know, mm-hmm. new authors, and um, this cherished, trusted public institution that, frankly, I, I came to believe was the underpinning for not just for the publishing industry, but with for our enduring love of reading. You know, it, it, it's certainly true that we would be reading for professional reasons and to get through our days regardless, but there's no explanation for why people are reading in the way that they do for pleasure, you know, since the, I mean, I guess the modern habit of reading is really about 150 years old. It actually grows up with public libraries in the U.S., but 
you know, since the, the at least the um, 17th century, ordinary people have been reading uh, for pleasure. And it really has to do, the, the, the continuation has to do with libraries, with the fact that they're, they're teaching us to do this activity with preliterate children, to just read to them, to, 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 to take this way of storytelling and, and make it the one that, that survives. So, um, and what's interesting is that if you go into, into the library side of the question, you realize that there was a decision made. Um, there was a very famous um, librarian in, in Baltimore County uh, named Charlie Robinson, who um, sort of revolted or rebelled against a, a long trend of librarians trying to elevate the discourse in the country by getting people to read classics and things that they thought their patrons should read. And he said, you know, let's give them what they want. You know, get let people read just for the joy of it, which in itself was great. You know, it was really democratizing. But... In fact, um, one of the unexpected consequences of that was that libraries actually started focusing on things that people already knew that they wanted, the bestsellers. And for that reason, discovery in public libraries, the, the act of finding something that you don't expect. And what I came to later understand is the sort of the, the geography and the to- topography of libraries um, was less focused upon. And that's part of the reason why uh, publishers eventually, uh, after, again, 130, 140 years of partnership, started to see libraries more as competitors because they didn't see libraries developing new authors systematically. They didn't see libraries focusing on discovery. They saw them, you know, lending a lot of bestsellers out. Um, so I sort of accidentally fell into this. I uh, had intended when I began to understand the outlines of the story to write maybe a thousand um, word blog post on Forbes, you know, just to mention this as a, an oddity. Um, but I got sort of sucked into it. I wrote two <laughs> articles. It was 12,000 words total. Hugh Howie, who I'd interviewed six months earlier, who wrote Wool, uh, sort of pointed out that his story that made him a millionaire had fewer words than that. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but you know, the nearly half a million people read one of those two articles. So the, the effect was that I started to get invited around to speak to librarians. Um, And I went to New Hampshire, I went to three or four other places and just sort of talked about, how central I believe that libraries were and how important their role was and how little, you know, outsiders really understood this. And um, I was invited to speak, this is in 2013, I was invited to speak at the uh, American Library Association National Conference in Chicago. And, you know, libraries sort of being what they are, the first thing that they said to me, the, the the person who called me said to me was, I know this is last minute. Okay, this is like in March before a June conference. But can you come and speak? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And they're like, well, all we have left is the last day of the conference on Sunday at 8 a.m. in the morning. And I said, you know, it's fine. It will, it will be great. I'm looking forward to it. And And I showed up. 
And I got into that room at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and there were 250 chairs in that room. And I was a little terrified by that. <laughs> I would be too. Yeah, I was asking the facilities people if we could maybe put a little circle with like 10 chairs in the, you know, in the empty space near the front. But as it turned out, by 8 a.m., there were 400 people in the room. The, the chairs were full. There were people sitting on the floor. There were people standing in the back. And they had turned away another 150 people. And the energy in that room was absolutely electric because I was – it's not you know anything about me in particular. It was that I was saying something as an outsider that they passionately believe, that they are more important that people – than people recognized. And I was telling them to do something about it. I said, you know, you should really show your collective power by discovering new authors and promoting them and showing that you can do something different. And I got into a taxi leaving uh, the convention center there in Chicago. And I got on Twitter and I saw that a group of librarians from Illinois had already started tweeting about doing something about that, which, you know, I had been at that point, I had been training after I left uh, corporate marketing. I had been training for maybe nine years. And so I was quite used to either coming out of a corporation, nonprofit government training and never hearing from those people until they needed the next training again. Um, The The power of social media. Exactly. So, but what's amazing is that these librarians actually carried that through. They created something called the Illinois Author Contest which discovers unpublished authors. And it has now been running for eight years. It's in 13 uh, states and Canada. And um, they won a National Library Award based on that. So right from the beginning... Did they send you a thank you letter, David, for giving them the idea? Well, you know, they invited me to come and I I gave out the the award for the first two years I presented to the winning author, which was fantastic. They were super great about, um, uh, in 2015, they were written up in American Libraries Magazine, which is like the big industry magazine. And they acknowledged me right up front for having had this idea, which was fantastic. And I just got sucked in. So now half of my work is with libraries. That's a very long answer to a short question. But. No, but it's, a very, it's, fa- it's fascinating too, because... You know, again, libraries have been around for forever and no one was really, they weren't really treating themselves the way any other brand would treat themselves. You know, you have to, you have to apply the rules of marketing to everything and we weren't really doing that. And this is, you know, this is what I came to do is I initially I was for probably two solid years. I was pretty much flying around on my own dime, um, just speaking and then eventually Library Journal approached me and said, hey, have you ever thought of doing training? And I said, well, I run a training company, yeah. So yeah. I, <laughs> it's I top of mind. <laughs> they said, well, you know, would you like to partner with us and train libraries? And I, and I worked with them for a couple of years. I also have worked with the Public Library Association. So I did quite a lot of training. In the process of doing training, I realized that a lot of the issue was physical, meaning it was how libraries were set up and designed. And my, one of, I guess my second professional job was as a merchandiser for a, a retail store chain. And, um, and then through my marketing career, you know, we hired detailing forces. I, you know, I worked on uh, uh, shelf sets and 
all of that. So, so I started to get more focused on space in libraries. Um, and about, let's say four years ago, I, I started auditing libraries because I, I would go into a library to do training and I give them all this advice. And then the, the librarian, you know, that hosted the conference would say to me, could you walk through my library and tell me what to do with this space, you know, to, to use those merchandising tricks. And I would start saying, well, this aisle is too narrow and you need to move this there. And you could tell after about the fourth thing you told them, their eyes would glaze over. It was like too much information. So eventually I created a, a, a way of delivering a report and adding visuals and everything into it. And, and I started actually doing that and charging for it. And I started to see libraries transform, which is really exciting. Um, and the result of that was that in 2019, I actually wrote the official guide for the Public Library Association to space planning, which, you know, as a non-architect, non-interior <laughs> designer doing that was an odd thing to do. But now I actually work with, you know, architects and interior designers. To, to help you on that. I mean, I, one of the things that occurred to me while you were speaking is that the process of discovery is something that is hard anymore, period. It's not mm-hmm. just a library issue. And, you know, one of the things that always annoys me the most about our algorithm, algorithmic, I can never quite say that, it doesn't mm-hmm. roll off my tongue easily, world is that you're being served what you already like. And that whole idea of discovering something new becomes that much harder right. to do. And yet if it's set up right in a library, it's going, you're going to find things that, well, I didn't think about that. You know, that whole process that makes us curious about something we didn't know we were curious about yet, as opposed to, well, they really like James Patterson. So I'll give them more James Patterson type of thing. Well, yeah, I think, you know, if you think in broader terms, the real challenge of life in a world with 10 billion people is curation, right? It's, it's how to present people with things that they don't know about, but would like. Um, and this is, you know, this is a central thing that libraries grasp. I mean, there are libraries, particularly in the U S right now, particularly with where we are and what we've been going through. So many of the experiences and spaces that we walk through are segregated and it's true. They're segregated in ter- often in terms of race de facto, but, but also they're segregated by income. They're segregated by affluence. They're segregated by uh, uh, political orientation and lifestyle and many other things. We don't think about this when we're choosing a place to live or a neighborhood to, to, to be in or friends to be with. But what we're doing is we're micro-channeling ourselves into a specific niche that really keeps us out of contact with other people. And so whenever we turn on the national news and we're shocked by what people are doing, and really it's true, whatever your point of view is, it, it's partially because we don't have exposure to things that are unlike us. So libraries really are the last democratic element of our democracy. They're the last place where you encounter people who don't think or feel or live anything like you. Um, and where you cohabit civilly. Right. And so I think that the design of libraries and and the the intentional um, curation of libraries to make them spaces that bring people together is incredibly important to 
to our democracy at this moment. So can you tell you, you write a lot in the article that I read, you wrote a lot about this whole idea of expanding what a library has been in the past, as opposed to just a place to come and and check out a book, Um, which I haven't been in a library, I will admit, since pre-pandemic. So um, I think the idea of touching another book is is a whole other issue. But I want to go more into how how do you see this whole idea of community? Because I think it's kind of fascinating the way you wrote about it. Right. And, to, you know, to be fair, this is nothing that I created or, you know, have invented or have any intellectual authorship over. This is something that libraries have been doing for a generation. But, um, you know, in in pockets, you know, not not it's not a national movement of any sense. I think it is a trend for sure. But. Um, as community centers uh, disappear in many places, as um, uh, the schools retreat because of budgeting concerns and everything, libraries have just taken on more roles in many places. And they found that it's one of the best places to uh, teach people about voting. It's uh, an ideal space for English as a second language. Um, it's a place to um, uh, help people understand how to file their taxes. Um, it's a place to come, you know, librarians um, have spent a huge amount of energy over the last few decades on programming. So now people don't even realize, or they may realize, but they don't think about the library in terms of borrowing books or, or movies or anything like that. They may just be coming in to hear somebody speak or hear a concert or learn about something new. So you've got all of these, you know, they've effectively become civic hubs. Um, and, of course, that becomes even more important when, um, you know, the the society is challenged in general. I agree. You talk about that, too, about actually a place to teach civics, which mm-hmm. for some reason somewhere along the line got thrown out of our educational curriculum. And I'm not really sure how that happened, but there's clearly an, a need about it. Um, you talk about designing with more human interaction between your, the library staff and the public. Can, can you talk about that? So over time, um, I think libraries became attractive to a group of people who were really quite iconoclastic. Um, who often didn't feel like they fit in in other places, who had, you know, sort of passion and opinions about things. And um, that it's what makes them so interesting to me um, professionally. Um, I can tell you for one thing, you know, is as I get older, I appreciate uh, working with librarians more because I have never, you know, I've worked with nonprofits, with the government, with lots of corporations with small businesses. I've never met any group of leaders who are, um, who look at the world with less prejudice, um, including less age prejudice, um, who sort of take everybody on their own terms, um, who are used to dealing with literally every element of society. Um, but, you know, also I think, a lot of that has also come with a certain view of what a librarian is um, that um, sometimes in, in some settings can be a little resistant to change in terms of the way the library works. And the, the challenge for that is that um, the demand now, when you think about 
the pandemic in particular. And you know, it's not like it's pandemic is not creating new issues for libraries. It's sort of accentuating things that already existed. Mm-hmm. So we know, for instance, one of the things that I did that um, uh, has been a little novel for libraries is to bring some marketing disciplines into libraries. And one of them is the analysis and the analysis of spaces looking at day parts, right? So librarians know that their, their physical space functions differently at different times of the day, but they, but they mostly haven't thought about it um, in a you know, in a really systematic way. And what I've been trying to do is to get them to recognize that if you have a whole bunch of toddlers in the children's library in the morning, and then they leave and by three or three thirty when school ends, you get, you get a bunch of, you know, second to sixth graders, that that's a different space, right? That's, and those kids are using that space in a different way. And while particularly west of the Mississippi, there are a lot of libraries that have so much space that they can, you know, have individual places for all those different groups. For most libraries, it's the same space that those different groups are using. Um, And so adaptability becomes one of the most important traits of the physical space design of the library. And, you know, going back to who are librarians, I think one of the challenges has been that um, when you're dealing with a flexible, adaptable space, you have to have sort of a flexible, adaptable mindset and a whole bunch of different skills. When libraries, you know, librarians to become a head librarian, they, they mostly, have, mostly have to have a, um, a master's in library science degree. But it's really, if you look at those curricula, uh, that's primarily like an information degree. Like it's they're specialists in managing um, uh, information, understanding uh, data, um, and it doesn't really teach them about management or fundraising or publicity or OSHA regulations or you know space planning or. Um, PR or marketing or social media or any of those things. Um, so the, I think a big challenge now is to really hire a broader cross section uh, of people and to make sure that you have all these different skills that you actually end up needing um, within the library environment. I, I think that, I think that's true for so many industries now. It's that whole idea that, Soft skills are important. Mm-hmm. We tend not to teach them. Um, I think it's hard to teach them, but you certainly can facilitate them and open people's ideas on what these are about. But I think you see that a lot with a lot, especially in, in the in the tech. Anything that's very technical oriented, and it's 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 kind. I think it's key to moving forward. You talk about some model libraries, and I just want to. I'm curious what makes a model library a model library. You referred to three in the art in the article: Baltimore County, Denver, and Queens. And of course, my ears perked up at Queens because that's the borough that I grew up in. So that was the the Glen Oaks Library was the first library I ever set foot in. So I'm curious what makes it model. Well, in in those cases specifically, it has to do with <clears throat> their um, bringing services into the library to address vulnerable populations like uh, people experiencing homelessness or refugees. Um, there's uh, like Pima County, Arizona. 
actually has um, RNs uh, working in the library. So they're doing uh, blood pressure screenings, health education. You know, diabetes is probably the greatest health concern even uh, in the long run, bigger than the pandemic in the country. And, um, you know, this type of education and, and early detection is critical. And that's where you can find people is in the library. So, um, so you know, uh, uh, anything libraries in Adams County, Colorado, in terms of uh, being a, a civil hub and a civic hub and bringing all these additional services into the library space has been a model library. So um, I just think that while it, what I said before is true that, you know, sort of nationally there hasn't been the the majority of libraries still aren't doing all of these things together. There are great models throughout the U.S. of libraries who have brought, you know, really interesting practices out. And, and a lot of what I do now is really to to go around and find those and to, you know, try to um, institutionalize the learning for, for other libraries. They're publicly funded. Where does the money come from? Is it state, local combinations, yeah. donations? This is this is something I'm still learning about because there are so many models. Um, for instance, uh, locally here in Westchester County, I um, uh, in my you know government role, I for, refer to. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually I forget that you're a government official. <laughs> I'm the liaison to the library, so I sit in on library board meetings, and in this case here. Um, it's funded by tax dollars directly from two municipalities, from our village and the town, and we pay a third of the operating expenses of the library. The town pays two-thirds. There's other, there are many other models, so there are libraries funded directly by states. Um, probably the, the most sustainable model that I've seen is where there are special tax districts for libraries. So, in other words, a library um, levies a tax directly and, you know, can can issue its own bonds, which still have to be, you know, voted on usually uh, uh, by the public. But that's more effective because it doesn't get involved in, in politics as much. But there's a whole there are a whole range of funding models. It's, it's mostly either public funded or a combination of public and uh, uh, fundraising and sometimes private money, too. So just out of curiosity, I have a couple more questions because I know I know you're you're a busy man. Um, how do you see libraries able to draw people back in? I mean, I think this is a this is an overarching theme for anyone who's got a so to speak brick and mortar location. How do we make it people feel safe enough to come in and because br- library is a browsing activity. I don't remember the last time I've been any place to browse. I go to the grocery store, but that's not really browsing. And that just that browsing in, which is a lot of how retail discovery is going to happen. What do you do to make it people feel safe? What do you think? Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting question because again, there are two Americas, right? So there is, there are libraries that I deal with every day throughout the country who have the opposite problem, which is they're trying to keep too many people from being in or to be too close from each other and to get them to take appropriate precautions. Um, but, but other libraries and, you know, in, in every place, they're actually dealing with both kind of people, you know, so we are local libraries only um, doing curbside delivery still. Um, and there's a group of people locally who are upset about that, who want to see the library open. Um, 
But I think the, the, the broader answer to your question is that um, as the health situation allows, um, libraries have to start to design their space to make it easier to not be close to people initially. Um, and so that, you know, that's part of what I've been working with an architect on is to look at these cues. Like we can create one-way pathways through the library. So you're not encountering somebody face-to-face on your journey through the library. And the, the sort of easy way to do that is put arrows, but actually arrows turn out to be sort of a bad way to get people to move in a direction. What you do instead is you angle displays so that they are really only uh, make sense if you're going in one direction. Oh, interesting. Um, Right. So you, you, you take you, you sort of take advantage of the natural features and you make make it comfortable to go in one direction and less comfortable to go in the other direction. And that tends to get people moving the way that you want them to. Um, we look at seating now and when when the libraries that are in those situations where they're able to admit people and have them sit down, that's sort of the second step. Um, and now what we want to do is make sure that ventilation is adequate. And that there, you know, that there's uh, filtration is appropriate. So there's a lot of looking at HVAC systems. Then you want to make sure that um, you've got adequate spacing, but then also angling so that people are not facing directly at one another. You're looking at barriers. So how do you put up screens or things that can help, um, you know, at least directly not having somebody cough at you? You know, it's a lot of those. And, and I think the more interesting question, frankly, um, is when as people return to libraries, particularly if the pandemic um, completely fades away, how much of that remains, right? Mm-hmm. You know, not like our parents who lived through the Depression, you know, became free spending. By it never the- happened. <laughs> it never happened. So. It never happened. So I think the really interesting question is what are the long-term effects on society going to be from this experience? So how personally have you handled all this? I know you are the father of three. Uh (laughs) (laughs) How have you personally managed? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been difficult because um, my wife and I both work full time. Um, Neither one of us has a trust fund, so we we really need, (laughs) work to, to pay the bills and of course I as this started I had 11 trainings canceled and I was actually lucky to to last year really just started for the first time working on long-term renovations of libraries so that sort of sustained me but with a five-year-old an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old in the house all from March through September and then starting in September the five-year-old's gone two hours a day and the eight and 11-year-old are gone two days a week in school. You know, it's a lot of talking to my wife and seeing who can work at any given moment. So I think we're all struggling in different ways. And I think the unique challenge of parents is sort of trying to be, you know, cruise ship directors and learning coordinators in a way that we never had to be before. I like that cruise a cruise director. So I want to finish up with one question. As you were speaking earlier and you talked about how you got involved in the libraries, it was really from a blog article, an article that you wrote on, not blog, a regular article you wrote on, on Forbes magazine. And I've known you, you're actually one of the first faculty members I met when I started teaching in 2013 at NYU. And you have a, a fairly low-key demeanor in terms of promoting yourself, but yet what you do 
always seems to really bring exactly the people that you want to work with towards you. So I'm just curious what advice you might give to those who don't want to be crazy active on social media, but still want to be able to use digital tools to help advance their careers and build their personal brand, so to speak. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I I went through a whole bunch of careers before I settled on what I wanted to do. I was a management consultant in the 80s. I was a banker for a couple of years in the 90s. Um, the first thing that I loved probably was brand management. Um, but I think the thing that I've learned in this sort of phase of my professional life is that if you focus more on the who than the what, um, in other words, when you find people that you really uh, like working with and gravitate towards, then focus on what their needs are and become as expert as you can in in working with them. If you like who you work with, it really doesn't matter what the subject is. You know, you're going to like what you do. And so I, I realize that doesn't tell you anything about the tools that you need, but I think it just completely depends on who those people end up being. No, I think it does. I think it, because it's actually, you're writing for the who, not, not necessarily the what as well. And, um, and I agree. I always tell people it's not who you work with and who you work for is as important as what you do because they can make or break a, a business day. <laughs> no, no two ways about it. No, I think that, I think that's wonderful. David, where can people find you? I, and I didn't even mention the fact that you're also a writer of fiction. Um, so I guess I should put your Amazon, I'll just put your Amazon um, author page in, in, in the, in the show notes. Is there um, any place specifically that people can reach out to you? I'll make sure I have links to everything. Sure. Well, if anybody wants to, to send me a note, they can either, uh, just email me at david at brand, B-R-A-N-D, trainers, T-R-A-I-N-E-R-S dot com. Uh, I'm at dvinjamori, V-I-N-J-A-M-U-R-I on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, if not, uh, just uh, find me by Googling me. So, <laughs> And you can follow him on LinkedIn. You can always follow him on LinkedIn. Right. Find me on LinkedIn. That's a good way to Thank you so much. It is always such a treat to have a conversation with you. Thanks. Nice talking to you, Joanna. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note, info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>